Do you invest your money strictly in stocks and bonds? If so, it's time to change that. Welcome to Approach Investing Differently with me, Stephen Rosen from Hightower Bethesda. I've been advising clients for over 20 years on how to invest in alternative investments, and I'll explain why you should dedicate a percentage of your investable assets to hedge funds, private equity, and real estate in order to maximize returns and create a more efficient investment portfolio. Now, on to the show. There are strategies to using hedge funds. In his last show, Stephen Rosen talked about the myths and misunderstandings of the funds in general. This time around, he explains various ways to use the investments and how each might be useful. I'm Patrice Sikora. Stephen, as a review, let's start with a a quick high-level definition of a hedge fund. Sure. So a hedge fund is an investment vehicle that individuals and institutions and endowments can utilize in terms of accessing markets and trying to find an investment strategy that works in all different types of markets. Generally, the goal of most hedge funds is to provide some level of an absolute return, meaning they want to make money whether or not markets go up, down, or sideways. Different funds have different objectives. As we talked about last time, uh, multi-strategy hedge funds are exceptionally well-diversified, generally low volatility. And so when markets rage to the upside, we don't expect those types of funds to go along with it. Yet when markets get hit, such as COVID of 2020, when the markets were down 25 to 35%, uh, we expect those types of funds to protect capital exceptionally well. So it's not so much a distinct definition of a hedge fund, although the general goal is they can go and do anything they want, uh, respective of the within the confines of the strategies that they're traditionally laying out. And then as we're going to talk about today, outside of the general multi-strategy section of the hedge fund market, there are then what we like to call satellite options. And a lot of times those satellite options are carving out individual segments of a traditional multi-strategy fund to try to take advantage of maybe a different market environment. Maybe you want to have a little bit less risk. Maybe you're willing to take on a little bit more risk. And we try to build a portfolio with our core positions. And then depending upon the size of a client, we'll start to add in satellite positions based upon uh, our general objectives. All right. Now you have four of these satellite positions that you generally use, correct? Correct. And there's many, many more that are out there, but in general, the four that we traditionally focus on are are credit funds, uh, then long short funds, event-driven funds, and then global macro, which is a very broad category. And people view that in very different terms, depending upon the fund that you're with. The other three, though there are nuances to them, are generally relatively specific. All right. Well, global macro does sound huge. All the way <laughs> it is. And, and, and there's lots of different umbrellas underneath that global macro. And, and in all fairness, sometimes um, hedge funds just throw out the term global macro because it allows them to have a lot of flexibility in their mandates and, and what they're looking to do. So it allows them uh, to put on some more risk, take off some risk, depending on what they want. But there's a lot of great managers that are out there that do focus in that segment. And we'll get to the managers in a little bit. Tell me first about credit, the credit strategy. So 
credit, if you think about the way most people invest um, in credit, credit being uh, fixed income or bonds as other people would think about them, most individual investors are buying plain vanilla corporate bonds, um, which is debt backed by a corporation, or they buy municipal bonds, which is debt backed by a municipality. All of those types of bonds have different credit ratings, triple A being the best. Um, then there's high yield bonds in both the municipal and the corporate area. But in general, what those categories are very plain vanilla. You collect a coupon and you're taking on two things. Uh, you're taking on one, interest rate risk, which is how a bond prices relative to where interest rates are, or credit risk, which is how a bond prices relative to the ability of the underlying issuer to pay back um, their dividends as well as your money at the end of the day. A credit fund can own any of those types of securities and then some, but they also do have the ability, like our multi-strategy funds, we'll get to our long-short funds, to both be long credit or short credit, which basically means they have the ability through different investment tools in the market to almost bet against the success of a company. Maybe they will short a bond um, or utilize other type of derivatives to short against the credit of a company, whereby they think they will have a difficult time paying that back their 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 loans. Maybe they don't necessarily uh, completely default on them, but because of things that are going on, maybe a bond that is priced at 100, they might think will go to 80 cents on the dollar for varying reasons, and they have the ability to capitalize and make money on that. Other times, uh, they might be looking at what we call distressed opportunities whereby there may be a company uh, who is having tremendous amounts of issues at a point in time. There's a lot of skepticism as to whether or not they will be able to pay their debts and their bonds, which might be trading at a you know, it would initially start out at a par value of 100. Potentially, those bonds are trading at 8, 9, 10 cents on the dollar. And they've done credit research and they look at the company and they say, okay, we think they're going to survive and we're going to go in and buy this distressed credit. Or they may look at the company and say, you know what, the company won't entirely survive, but we're going to take a look at the assets that are backing this company and the assets that they have. And they say, okay, well, if we sell off this piece and we break off this piece and we spin off that piece, and maybe we hold on to this, at a worst case scenario, maybe we get 30 cents. Well, if they're buying it for 10 or 12 cents and they sell it for 30, that's a significant mm -hmm. return. So essentially what we're looking at in these credit funds is them accessing various investment options within the credit market that you're definitely not going to get as a general investor. And sometimes these deals are tied to private equity deals, which we love and we'll talk about in future episodes. Uh, every private equity deal usually has a component of equity and debt. And we like sometimes investing in the, the debt as well as the equity for varying reasons um, that we can get to when we talk about private equity. There's a lot of asset-backed securities that are out there, whether they be mortgage-backed securities, which I know to some hmm. have a negative connotation going back to the global financial crisis. But in general, there are definitely ways to make money there and make money handily. Got things like airline leases. You've got things like airport hangar leases and gate leases. So there's a lot of different nuances within the credit markets. And from us, the, the credit funds are designed to um, play more in the private space 
necessarily rather than the public space. The issue that you have with the public space is that it's somewhat crowded with mutual funds and index ETFs. And so when markets go haywire, people look for liquidity and they sell. And if a mutual fund gets a redemption for $200 million in a day, well, guess what they have to do? They have to go out and sell $200 million worth of their bonds. And it's the same reason why we like private equity, because you don't have to get forced to, into a forced sale of whether it be your equities or your bonds when markets are going haywire. A private credit fund doesn't have that type of liquidity issues. You can get liquidity maybe on a quarterly basis or a semi-annual basis or an annual basis, and you have to submit there. And They only are willing to tender a certain portion of the fund on a quarterly basis. So when that happens, you're able to own some more illiquid assets that are generally much more stable, that aren't being sold by every investor when the market goes down 10 or 15 or 20% and they get nervous and they think, oh, wait, we're not supposed to lose money in bonds. And then all of a sudden your bond is down 10 or 12% and they panic and they sell same way they do with the equities. And so that's why we like private credit. Again, no one's selling these things on a day-to-day basis. The volatility is much less. You're worried more so about the credit work for the individual company itself. And as long as that company is money good, it doesn't really matter what happens along the way. So private credit, just like private equity, takes out a tremendous amount of the day-to-day noise that spooks investors. We'll have to do something on that private equity credit pretty soon, the way the markets have been going lately. I think that'd be a great podcast. (laughs) Well, we'll get to that one, no doubt. (laughs) All right, let's look at the long-short strategy. So long-short hedge funds are a very interesting piece within that world because there really are a lot of different ways Uh, for hedge funds to invest in that space. So let's just take a look for a second at the terminology long, short. So long is what most investors do. They buy a company with the idea that it's going to go higher over the course of time. Shorting a company is the notion that you are selling the stock today with the idea that you're going to buy it back at a later point in time at a cheaper price therefore benefiting from markets going down. So that's the general gist of long short. So Within the space, I'm sorry, basically on yeah. the short, you're betting against whatever investment you're choosing. 100%. Gotcha. Okay. Now, long short hedge funds have a lot of variety in which they can do. So we'll start off with one very simple one, which might be a market neutral strategy. A market neutral strategy for every dollar they invest long, where they think the markets are going to go higher, they will invest a similar dollar shorting something. And what they're generally looking to do is capture the difference of performance of a given stock. And I'll give you just a very plain vanilla example. You might have a manager that says, you know what? I think Pfizer is undervalued relative to Merck. And that manager might say, I'm going to buy Pfizer I'm going to short Merck. And all they are looking to do is capture the difference in the performance of those two companies. The theory there is that if the market goes up and the tide lifts all boats, Mm -hmm. Merck might go higher, Pfizer might go higher, but as long as Pfizer outperforms Merck, they'll make money. Conversely, if the market goes down and everything goes down, The theory is, well, if Merck goes down, 
and Pfizer goes down, okay, as long as Pfizer goes down less than Merck, I make money again. And they build an entire fund around these different types of strategies. And sometimes it might not be pairing one stock off versus the next. It could be saying, I think Pfizer is going to outperform the entire drug sector. And they'll buy Pfizer and maybe short drug ETF sector uh, index and, and just trying to capture the difference in performance of Pfizer relative to the index. The bottom line is those guys are not trying to take on tremendous amounts of risk. They're trying to continually hit singles and doubles because the truth of the matter is, unless there's a, a major issue with one company relative to another, markets are very efficient. If markets are going higher, generally all sectors are going higher together. If it goes lower, they're generally going lower together. So again, you're just trying to clip three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10% performance difference of one versus another. Sometimes it's more, um, but in general, that's what you're trying to capture. It's like playing that's a seesaw. Correct. And that is really the most conservative level of a long short fund. And then what you can potentially do is just move up the ladder. And there's a terminology called net long. And net long is basically the difference between how much money you have invested long for the upside versus how much money you have to go short. Again, coming back, mutual funds are 100% net long. They don't have any shorting capacity to them. That's not the way they're structured. A long short hedge fund will have a long component and a short component. And depending upon how aggressive they want to be, they will pull the levers on that short component. We started off with market neutral, where you're 100% long, 100% short. You really have no true market exposure. It's really individual equity exposure of outperformance relative of one to another. Or you can move up the ladder and be 50% net long where for every dollar you have invested, you've hedged out 50% of your risk. Again, you can do it via indexes. You can do it individual equities. Bottom line is a 50% net long manager is going to have more risk and more volatility relative to a market neutral fund, generally less risk and less volatility compared to a plain vanilla mutual fund. And so from a long short standpoint, the way we look at funds is what is your objective? Are you purely market neutral or are you pulling the lever of the net long, net short component? And where maybe you have the ability to go anywhere from 40% net long up to 80% net long, how much volatility are you willing to accept? What are your objectives? We have funds whose objectives are um, almost like equity like substitutes. They may potentially be net 80% net long, yet they're barely hedging out some of their risk. Um, and their goal is to have a concentrated portfolio. Their goal is to outperform the market. They're going to get market volatility. And in that instance, it's a hedge fund, but we utilize it more so in the terms of an equity-like substitute because we know the volatility we're going to get is high. It's going to be market-like volatility. But again, if they can outperform the market with the same level of risk, then we're winning. If they perform in line with the market, but they do it with less risk, we're winning. Okay. If they perform below the market, then we need to start looking at how much risk are they taking. And if it's market risk, well, we don't want to take market risk and underperform the market. That would be silly. Okay. But if you're taking, you know, if you're getting 
80% of the market return, yet you're 50% net long. So you're taking 50% essentially of the risk. Well, then there's a value there. You're getting 80% of the return for 50% of the risk. You're doing your job. And it's our job to continue to evaluate these types of managers and see where we want to be and make sure they're adding value and they're worthwhile owning. And if they're not, then we're going to get out of them. All right. Event-driven. Now, I want to make this clear. Is this a corporate event-driven uh, strategy or is it a, is it a current events world event-driven strategy? So it's a it can it can be one just strictly corporate or two it could be a combination of corporate and geopolitical. Many times in the cor in, in the event space, and this is also true in the multi-strategy space, um, funds can put on what we call tail risk. Tail risk is we're going to make a very small nominal bet relative to the size of the fund, but we're going to do it and say. If this happens, if the market goes down 40%, we're going to make a ton of money on this bet. And they do it as just a, as a practical hedge against stuff happening, bad stuff happening, big drawdowns in the market. But they usually only dedicate a nominal amount of money uh, to their fund for this tail risk because most of the time, tail risk doesn't occur. So it ends up being a losing bet. So it's not like you're going to dedicate two or three or 4% of your portfolio to tail risk because for the most part, every single year, you get to lose two, three, or 4%. Eventually, you might make 25 or 30% from that bet, um, but you're going to be losing along the way. So most of the times, they're, they're going to dedicate one to less than 1% um, for that kind of geopolitical tail risk of some uh, event happening. Most of the time on the event-driven strategies, it's corporate. And it's a combination of things. Somebody can invest in a company and, and say, but the sum of the parts are currently greater than the whole. And so they're going to invest in the company. A lot of times they'll take an active position in it. And what they will try to do is push the company. Um, and that's a combination of event-driven and activism um, from a hedge fund management you know, technical standpoint. But they'll take a position in this company and they'll say, okay, we want to try to drive uh, the company and management to make these changes because we think that they've got five different subsidiaries and you know each of those five subsidiaries if they were trading on their own or at least maybe you took out one or two you can enhance the value and maybe company x that's trading at eighty dollars um, maybe as a total part value of a hundred and they think you can capitalize on that strategy and they'll get involved um, doing it that way other times on event driven you can have an arbitrage strategy whereby you've got company X buying company Y. And until that deal consummates in full, there's always some level of a spread. And so that's an arbitrage that people are trying to play. And sometimes those arbitrage because of concerns of federal trade approval, SEC approval, sometimes those spreads are larger than others. And so these managers will invest and try to collect nickels and dimes. Hmm. And there's a lot of deals that get done. And so there's a lot of nickels and dimes to be collected. And those nickels and dimes, as you can imagine, add up to dollars at the end of the day. It's not always the sexiest returns. That space generally is not a high double-digit return space because you're, you know, in general, in the arbitrage space, as I said, collecting nickels, nickels and dimes. Um, and the bottom, the, the problem with that arbitrage space, for what it's worth, is that you're collecting nickels and dimes, but if a deal goes bad and doesn't get approved, you have a tendency to lose dollars. So 
that's a little bit of the nuances of that space. But the event-driven space is a combination of arbitrage. It's a combination of spinoffs. It's a combination of maybe laws changing, regulations changing. As I said, as you said, corporate, political, geopolitical, there's all sorts of nuances that go into this event-driven space. The bottom line that you're looking at is there's some level or some form of a catalyst that the managers are looking for or expecting that's going to create a return Mm -hmm. for that investment. It's not the market's going to go higher or the market's going lower. It's exactly what you're looking at. There's an event that is going to drive the performance of their investment. And simply put, there's so many different events out there and everybody's looking at different things and different ways to make money. um, And that's general thesis behind it. All right. We'll get again to those fund managers. I want to get into them and how important they are. But the global macro, the big one, the real big one, tell me where that one plays a role. (laughs) So global macro, as I said, is one of those funds that a lot of people call themselves that because it gives them a lot of diversity. Many instances, global macro funds are really just somewhat versions of a multi-strategy fund, but sometimes they may be a little bit more focused on derivatives, managed futures, economic trends, and maybe their focus is more on interest rates and currencies, sometimes less equity-driven than your multi-strategy hedge funds. You know, when you're dealing with managed futures funds, historically, those guys are what we call trend followers. And The problem with trend followers that we've seen over the years is that when volatility is low, it's very difficult to be a trend follower because the the, the trends are generally always going in one direction. And sometimes you can get a, a, a quick drop and all of a sudden you've been put out of your position because the trend changed and then you get whipsawed back in and eventually the trend goes back in that same direction could be a hard thing to do sometimes. And then the trends are different. Sometimes you have people who have daily trends. Some people are looking at monthly trends. Some people are looking at annual trends. And just the general volatility of the managed future space has historically been a feast or famine segment of the market. I will tell you, as a firm, uh, we don't own managed futures. There may be some managed futures inside of some of our multi-strategy funds, Uh, or our global macro funds, but we don't have any dedicated managed futures funds um, that we own because we just, we we think it's too difficult of a space to play. But the global macro, again, good concept. Again, depending upon the manager, how aggressive they're trying to be, how much, you know, leverage. The issue with global macro funds is a tendency of leverage because um, what they will do is, you you could buy a treasury and you can borrow off of that treasury So you can leverage your funds, you can borrow against the assets that are in the portfolio. And sometimes what you see is these global macro funds could be leveraged three, four, five to one. And so they're trying to collect sometimes pennies and dollars, which can turn into tens and twenties. But unfortunately, once you start incorporating leverage in these funds, you then leave yourself susceptible to major market downturns. And hence why you've seen some greater levels of volatility in that space. So it's a matter of, of really understanding to, to your point that you've mentioned, the managers, 
understanding the managers in that global macro space and in any space in particular, but global macro for one, due to the leverage component that can come in there to understand the risks that they're taking, what their guardrails are, because our whole thesis, as we've talked about on prior podcasts and will continue forever, is not taking on risk in, the, in, in our alternative space, whether it be our hedge funds or private equity or private real estate. We are not risk takers. We are looking at these um, as low volatility investments as a group. Occasionally, you'll have a higher volatility fund in there, but we're looking at slow and steady returns to offset the increased volatility of equities and the low level of returns that we've sort of seen in the fixed income market on average over the years and kind of what we think we're going to see going forward as we likely are more into an interest rate rising environment rather than an interest rate falling environment. Again, you've mentioned the managers. Just how important are the fund managers and what do you look at when you either decide to get into a fund or not? So on our equity side of our portfolios, we have opted to do indexes because what we have found over the years is that it's very, very difficult for an equity manager to outperform their benchmark over the course of time. And the reason for that is equity managers generally have a theme. That theme or thesis works for a period of time. Maybe they outperform the market. And then eventually their thesis or theme underperforms the market and they underperform the market. And then they have to revamp and find the new theme. And before you know it, they outperform for a couple of years, they underperform for a couple of years, and maybe five or 10 years later, they get to the same spot as the market, yet with more ups and downs. And, and so we've eliminated that because we just don't believe that actively managed long-only managers can add a tremendous amount of value. They add it in pockets, but not in totality. And again, other people have a different thesis. That's ours. Mm-hmm. On the hedge fund side, we find the complete opposite. We think that managers can add significant levels of value, but to your point, you have to have the right one. And fortunately, as I've said, for us, we currently you know, have somewhere over a billion, maybe even close to a billion and a half dollars of assets that we manage. Our portfolios maybe have 30% or so in alternatives. So we're talking about $450 million that we need to dedicate towards alternatives, Half of that goes to hedge funds. And so you're talking about 225. And then, you know, of that, maybe 10 or 15% goes to these satellite positions. So the truth of the matter is that over the course of our entire um, existence and then money that we bring in every single year, maybe we've got 25, 35, 40 million dollars in these satellite positions. So we have the ability to be very, very, very picky with who we have because we don't have to place the same amount of capital that a California state teacher's pension has to do or a Yale endowment. Their values, the numbers they're playing with are dramatically higher. And as we talked about in the multi-strategy space on a podcast, so many top-tier managers are closed or have limited capacity. So we're fortunate that we've got a great business Um, but we're not overwhelmed by the dollars that we have to put to work. And so we can generally stick with high quality managers and get access. And we're we're patient if somebody is closed. We avoid new managers. I will tell you that right off the bat. We don't believe in the story of manager X was at fund Y 
and they got tired of not being their own boss and they wanted to go spin off and start their own fund and look at the track record I had. We don't believe in that because what we've seen a lot of times is these guys are great portfolio managers, but now they have to run a business. They have to go raise money. And so once you start having to run a business, worrying about hiring people, worrying about building your brand, worrying about all the other things that take your eye off the portfolio management piece of the puzzle, your returns traditionally suffer. So we generally uh, avoid new managers. We want people with good long track records. We like funds, particularly in the hedge fund space, with higher levels of assets. Um, Our asset levels that we look for in our hedge funds are dramatically higher than what we look for in private equity and private real estate. Um, Again, public equity markets are way more liquid than private markets. So we want someone who's got high levels of capital in there with good long. So we want a long track record. We want good experience. We want good management behind the, the, the firm steadiness as far as we don't like turnover in, in, in the funds themselves. But uh, we do think that at the end of the day, in all the spaces, credit long, short, event-driven, global macro, there are people who outperform and there are people who specialize in these types of strategies. When you're taking a look at a multi-strategy fund, you probably accept the fact that the underlying teams might not necessarily be the single best at what they do. But when you put the, the whole together, it makes an amazing team. Once you start pulling out these satellite positions, now you're really looking for the best of the best, the creme de la creme, and you want the guys or girls who have been exceptionally successful, good long track records for a long time. And when you take a look across the space, we know who those people are, and it's just about having patience to access them when they open. And speaking of patience, how long do you give a manager if they seem to be stumbling? We'll give them a a decent amount of leeway, given the fact that we're not looking at anybody who is new. Mm -hmm. I'm a believer that people don't go stupid overnight. (laughs) Just doesn't happen. If you're good at what you do and there's been no dramatic change to your strategy, to your philosophy, the way you look at things there's a reality that you're not going to be perfect. And we understand and accept that. I'll, I'll give you a good analogy. And, and, and I apologize to the listeners. I don't have the exact numbers. It's more of a philosophical thing that I know and, and have seen as it relates to pension plans, changing the equity managers in their portfolios. And it basically, the study was basically done and said that I think it was like 60 or 80% of the managers that get fired from pension plans go on to outperform over the next three and five-year period of time. And it just comes back to that long-only thought process where managers outperform, good managers outperform for a period of time, then they underperform for a period of time, and then they outperform. Well, nobody in their right mind Okay, whether it be equity managers, fixed income managers, hedge funds, nobody sells a manager who's doing really, really well. Mm-hmm. If you've got a guy who's hit, you know, if you've got a fund that's, you know, outperformed the market for four years straight, you're not going to say, oh, hey, they're due to underperform. Let's sell them. Your clients will look at you like you're crazy. 
So what happens is you hold on to those guys, then they go through their period of underperformance. And the powers that be look at the advisors and say, well, why is this manager in here? He's underperformed the market for three years. The advisors are trying to keep their jobs and like, all right, well, let's get rid of them. And the study shows that that's clearly not the right thing to do. So from our standpoint, we do have patience. You have to have patience. You have to believe that unless there's been something that changes why the performance should be different, we're going to leave them alone. We'll put them on what we call a watch list. And we'll start having more regular conversations with the managers to get an understanding of what they're doing and why they're doing it. You know, sometimes it could be as simple. I'll give you a great example. Clearly can't name names, but we had a, a fund that we got access to. They were a $2 billion fund. They were pretty, well, it's not large in the hedge fund space, had really great returns. They decided to open and they took in $2 billion. So they doubled their asset size literally in the span of maybe six months. That was the one mistake that we made in terms of how we handled, not the performance of the fund, but the the investment in that fund, whereby I don't think we um, 100% took into account how hard it was going to be, even though they are equity managers, to just digest that capital. And their return suffered. I mean, it's a low volatility strategy. So it was a combination of, I think, them taking on too much money. And I think their strategy just didn't fit for the market environment. But it was a drag. The cash was definitely, I think, a drag on their performance. And it took some time to digest it. But we've been patient with it. And we suffered through a couple of years of mediocre performance. And then subsequently, we've been rewarded with them getting back to doing what they do. And we've seen that on several occasions. But you know, we're not opposed to selling a manager if it's not so much performance. Sometimes it's performance, but we have another manager who we had sold out a couple of years ago because they just started exhibiting too much volatility. And so what happened was is we were getting market-like volatility and we were underperforming the market. And that wasn't the strategy that we'd signed up for. They have sort of, you know, again, like we talk about, you morph a little bit. Maybe a manager has a thesis that they want to put in place. Maybe they believe you can take on more risk and the market will reward you. And it didn't necessarily happen. And that wasn't the role that we wanted that manager to play in our portfolio. Hmm. That manager wasn't somebody that we looked at, as I alluded to before, an equity-like substitute. We looked at them as they were more of an event-driven type of strategy, you know, moderate levels of volatility. And they morphed, became a little bit too long for us, too much volatility, too much, you know, not enough return relative to the, the risk. We saw it for pretty much a 24-month period of time. They weren't anticipating changing and they, we pulled the plug on them because they didn't fit what we had hired them to do. And again, clients made money. It wasn't like we lost money in it. It just, we weren't getting the returns in the fund relative to the risk we were taking. Therefore, we pulled the plug. So we're very open to selling managers, but there's got to be real reasons. It's not just, hey, they underperformed for two quarters. I'm getting impatient. Get out. Can't do that. Yeah. Stephen, great information. Really interesting podcast. Thank you. How can listeners reach you? As always, we suggest that people go to our website at first, which is www.hightowerbethesda.com. There's 
uh, a whole host of podcasts that are up there for our podcast, for Leah Jones, who hosts a, a couple of great podcasts as well. So I would check her out. Um, and then you can see all the information you need on our firm, our investment philosophy, who we are, the depth of our team. And then you can always uh, contact us via email through there. You can follow me on LinkedIn. You can follow the firm on LinkedIn. Um, we're very active on social media just to you know, kind of put out content that we think will be relevant for people. And of course, you can always pick up the phone and give us a call and you can find that number on our website as well. Stephen Rosen, thank you very much. As you mentioned, listen to his past podcast and then follow so that you get all the new ones that will be coming out. Subscribe, you'll get even more. Share with colleagues and friends. I'm Patrice Sakura, and let's talk again later. Thank you for listening to Approach Investing Differently. Don't forget to follow the podcast to be notified whenever a new episode is released. Hightower Bethesda is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is neither indicative nor a guarantee of future results. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data or other information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other data or information contained in this presentation is provided as general market commentary and does not constitute investment advice. Hightower Bethesda and Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. Hightower Bethesda and Hightower Advisors, LLC, assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to this information. The information is provided as of the date of reference in the document. Such data and other information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed herein are solely those of the authors and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates.